Bibles, if you will, to the 66th chapter of Isaiah, and uh, instead of reading it, we will go through it together as we look at this passage. We come to the last chapter of Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah now a little over a year, and uh, kind of gotten feel at home with the old boy, and I uh, hope you have too. But uh, in this last chapter, Isaiah, again, uh, brings forward so many of the themes that we've seen throughout the book. As we look at it, we'll feel this, I'm sure, and uh, it comprises a fit ending for this great book of this great evangelical prophet. The first thing that we encounter here in uh, this 66th chapter is how God looks on unspiritual ceremonial worship. And you remember how the book started along this line almost, as God said in the first chapter that he said, your new moons and your feasts I cannot away with. I can't stand it. When you spread forth your hands, I will not hear. Your hands are filled with blood. And uh, he said that their religious services, which he had appointed, were an offense to him because their moral behavior was anything but uh, the way he would have them behave. Notice what we pick up here in this first verse. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. We remember that in this latter part portion of the book of Isaiah, uh, instead of it being a second prophet who's writing, it's Isaiah, through the Spirit of God, seeing into the future when the nation would go into captivity and then when they would return. And he sees here that after they return, there will be those who desire to rebuild the temple. But in their desire to rebuild a temple, he picks up still a wrong attitude towards the worship of God, that it's in externalities, that it's a ceremonial thing, but it's not of the heart. Uh, God said, uh, in reference to the nation all along, this people draw nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And uh, Isaiah foresees in, prophet, in prophecy that their attitude will be wrong. Uh, that they will think in terms of building a temple that will provide a resting place for God. And God is offended. And God says, I made the heavens and the earth, and the heavens can't contain me. We have the immensity of God brought before us. And he said, do you think you're going to build a house for me to rest in? Uh, this is a low view of God. And uh, he rebukes this attitude. Uh, <clears throat> And the attitude that God accepts, instead of this pride where they're going to do something for God, and it's all in externalities, the attitude that God accepts is brought out in the last half of that second verse. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. A contrite and broken heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. A heart broken for our unworthiness and our sin, contrite, penitent, uh, one who trembles at God's word. Now, there are two ways of trembling at God. We can 
fear God and hate Him and flee from Him. Or we can tremble with awe and reverence and, and hear His Word with the purpose of obeying as those that, out of gratitude, want to do the Lord's will. And this is the man to whom he will look. This is the one that is acceptable to him. Notice God's rejection of their worship. He says in verse 3, He that killeth an ox as is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. When you come to worship God, when you come to church, when you give money, but you do it in a wrong attitude. It's offensive to God. Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And religious services done from wrong motives or with wrong attitude is offensive. He that, uh, he says, he that killeth an ox. That was an appointed thing. But it was offensive to God. It's as if you offered a man that you had slain to God when it's done in the wrong attitude. Uh, <clears throat> why God looked on it that way in the last half of that third verse. It says, Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. Uh, because uh, their uh, walk didn't match their talk, it was offensive to God. The second thing that we encounter is how God regards unjust ecclesiastical authority. All the way along, Isaiah had rebuked uh, the priests who uh, were not truly leading the people aright in the worship of God and were not obeying God themselves. And we have here how God regards unjust ecclesiastical authority. In verse 5, he says, uh, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. As he looks on down into the future, he sees how, over the generations, that ecclesiastical authority in Israel will usurp authority, it will be unjust. And those who really tremble at the Lord's word, who really walk with him, will be cast out, will be excommunicated, rejected. And yet when the leaders eject them, they will say, let the Lord be glorified. They would say, we are uh, ejecting these uh, to the glory of God. How does God regard that? That's been a fact down through the ages. Uh, that the true prophets were persecuted, were cast out. We remember in Jesus' day, it was the religious authorities who opposed him and who ultimately had him crucified. Unjust ecclesiastical authority. We remember in our own day that it's the men who have stood for the Bible, it's the men who have stood for Orthodox Christianity, that are the men who are ejected. J. Gresham Machen, a great example. J. Gresham Machen, a teacher at Princeton Seminary, the founder of Westminster Seminary, ejected from the Northern Presbyterian Church back in the late 30s for standing up for the Scriptures, 
the simple orthodox faith. Thus it's always been. Well, how does God regard that? It says in verse 5, He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. They may cast you out, and they may say, Let the Lord be glorified, but he will appear to your joy and to their shame. In Jesus' day, he healed a man who was born blind. And the ecclesiastical authorities called this man in, and they examined him. And they said, uh, Give God the glory. The man who healed you, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man born blind answered, he said, uh, Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. And then he got to thinking about it, and he said, He couldn't be the kind of sinner you're saying that he is. Uh, because God doesn't hear sinners, not God wouldn't do dramatic things through this man Jesus if he was ungodly as you say that he is, a false teacher as you say that he is. And they said, Do you dare to teach us? You haven't even been to seminary. And they threw him out. And then what happens? We find where Jesus goes and hunts this man down and comes to him. And he says, uh, Do you believe on uh, me? And the man comes to full faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and comforts us when we're cast out by unjust ecclesiastical authority. He will appear to our joy and to their shame. We have uh, not only their shame brought before us, but an intimation of this wrathful judgment that will fall on them in verse 6. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Isaiah says, I hear a noise, a turmoil coming from the temple. It's the Lord in judgment dealing with these who exercise such unjust ecclesiastical authority, rendering recompense to his enemies. The next thing that we encounter is another theme that we've seen all the way through Isaiah, how Zion, God's true people, would bring to birth a nation in a day, or how God would cause Zion to bring to birth a nation in a day. In verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. And notice the unusual nature of this birth. Normally, a woman travails for a period of time and then has a child. But as soon, or even before Zion travailed, This child is born. A very quick, instant birth. Unusual birth. And notice what is born. A nation. Shall a nation be born at once? Uh, What is this nation that Zion would bring to birth? Well, we have brought before us again here in this dramatic way something that Isaiah has predicted all the way through, that one day there would be an immense sudden influx of the Gentiles 
to become a part of God's true Zion. In verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. We sing, I've got peace like a river. Well, that's where it came from. I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. He's predicting here this great influx of the Gentiles to become a part of God's Zion. Uh, the old Zion would pass away in the sense of the nation of Israel would come to an end. But in so doing, she would bring to birth an immense, strong, new male nation. The Gentiles brought in to be a part of God's true Zion. The supernatural cause of the birth in verse 9, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith God? The cause of it is God's supernatural working. We remember how uh, after Jesus' ascension, the Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, and immediately Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 are converted. A few days later, he does a miracle at the temple. 5,000 are converted. It spreads like wildfire. A nation, born overnight, true people, brought in to be a part of God's Zion, true believers, from the Gentiles then as it reaches on out with the Apostle Paul's ministry and so on. Uh, the result of the birth, in verse 10, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. Uh, we rejoice when a child is born with a mother. Well, joy would be one of the great aspects of, of this birth of a nation that Zion would bring forth there. All those who love Zion would rejoice. There would be consolation, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. Zion has the Spirit of God. Zion has true forgiveness. Zion has the covenant relation. And we suck at these breasts and we are satisfied. Uh, peace <coughs> uh, shall be extended. It says, uh, in verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. This is a result of the birth. Peace here really stands for prosperity. It says that the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream, glory here speaking of the Gentiles and all of their wealth coming in to be a part of God's Zion. Prosperity. <coughs> uh, comfort. In verse 13, as one whom his mother comforted, so will I comfort you. Notice that? As one whom his mother comforted. We're not used to the image of God as our mother. Uh, one preacher, T. DeWitt Talmadge, preached a sermon I read recently called God Our Mother. We think of God our Father, but he says, look at this verse. As a mother comforts her children, so will I comfort you. Talmadge's points were like this. He said, uh, God has a mother's simplicity of instruction. As you think of the way he's taught us, by precept and example, the way Jesus taught his disciples uh, with simplicity. 
Again, uh, God has a mother's capacity for tending to little hurts. Says God has a mother's patience for the erring child. And God has a mother's way of putting his child to sleep. When we face death, that's God putting his child to sleep. God has a mother's way of putting his child to sleep. How should we think of death as a Christian? Maybe like a mother singing a lullaby to a child as she rocks into sleep. And God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He tells us not to be afraid, that he has robbed death of its sting. It's going to sleep in Jesus. It's going to be with Jesus. God, our mother, great comfort. These things apply to us. He tells me that I will have peace like a river, that God will be like a mother to me, that I should rejoice over the great strength that's come to God's Zion, and that I should receive consolation from all that he's given to Zion. It says, In Jerusalem ye shall be comforted, in verse 13. That's not the literal city, but God's Jerusalem, God's true people, God's church, God's Zion. Those who are part of this shall be comforted. Uh, notice, <clears throat> he says <clears throat> in verse 14, And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice. As Isaiah looks on down through the years, he said, some of your descendants will be alive when this takes place. They will see, they will experience this when this mighty influx comes. When ye see this, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like a herb. The hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. And now we move to the next point, how God would execute his indignation toward his enemies. Again, this has been a theme throughout Isaiah, God's judgment. It says in <clears throat> verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come. Now this coming is a coming in judgment, uh, with fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh. I don't think this is uh, all flesh in the sense of all nations at this point. Uh, so much as in the context it seems to be the nation of Israel. The time would come when he would deal with that nation and judgment. And the nation would be destroyed. He will plead with them with a sword and with fire. And the result, verse 16, the slain of the Lord shall be many. There would be great catastrophe to the majority of the nation. Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. That's how God would execute his indignation. Calvin says, I have no doubt that he intends to include the last judgment along with the temporal punishments that were only the forerunners of eternal destruction. When he says the Lord pleads with all flesh, with the sword and fire, 
Calvin says, while it applies to his destruction of Jerusalem and so on, it ultimately brings before us the final judgment also. And he says, God describes the horror of this so that his true people may keep themselves chaste and may separate themselves from the wicked, that they be not partakers of their plagues. Next point, how God would send the Jews as evangelists to the Gentiles. And verse 17, excuse me, verse 19, And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, so on. God says, I will set a sign upon them, among them. A sign brings before us the miraculous. There would come a day when God would do something remarkable, supernatural, miraculous in the midst of the nation. And then he would send those that escape to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now this sign, I believe, speaks of all that accompanied the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who was approved uh, with great signs and wonders that God did through him, as we read in uh, Acts 2. I will set a sign among them. This is, in the light of the context, the whole wondrous series of events that occurred when the ancient Jewish nation was cast off by God, Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, Jesus Christ exercised his ministry that was so enveloped with the supernatural. The sending of the escaped to the nations. We have the sign that he would set among them, but the sending. Those that escape, those Jews who are not wiped out in this destruction, they are sent. This is the true remnant who really believe. They are sent to the nations. They survive the judgment that falls upon Israel. They are sent to the Gentiles, and he lists many of the Gentile nations, to the isles afar off that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory. What do they do? It says, they declare my glory among the Gentiles. They go and tell the Gentiles about God, about Jesus Christ. They declare his nature, his glory. Uh, In verse 20, And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters. Notice what they do. They declare his glory and they bring of their brethren, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations. Here we have the Jews going out to the Gentiles and bringing them back as an offering to the Lord. Paul saw his ministry in that light, as he tells us over in Romans 15, verse 15. Paul says this, reading from Philip's translation. He says, Nevertheless, I have written to you with certain frankness, to refresh your minds with truths that you already know, by virtue of my commission as Christ's minister to the Gentiles in the service of the gospel. He is one of those who was escaped 
and who went to the nations. For my constant endeavor is to present the Gentiles to God as an offering which he can accept, because they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And I have something to be proud of, through Christ, of course, in my work for God. Paul thought it was a great privilege to be used to bring an offering to God of the Gentiles. I don't know if we think of that. We think in terms of offering ourselves. We think in terms of offering our our time and our money. But what we have here is the whole concept of offering other people as we evangelize them and win them to Jesus Christ, and we offer them up as a pleasing offering to the Lord. That's part and parcel of what they were sent to do and of what we are sent to do. What a tremendous concept to offer our brethren. The Jew and the Gentile are brethren in Christ once they trust in Jesus Christ. You notice it says that they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord. Not a one will be left that is of God's elect. All will respond from all over. They'll be brought as an offering to the Lord. And of those who are brought, these Gentiles, God says in verse 21, And I will take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. Under the Old Testament law, only one tribe of Israel could uh, a priest be taken from. And a Gentile wasn't even to enter the temple. But when they're sent out and they bring these Gentiles, These Gentiles are adopted into the family of God and become brethren. Then God will choose from these Gentiles and make them priests and Levites. There's a sense in which every true believer is a priest now. We don't have a special priesthood. And we are all kings and priests under the Lord. There's also a sense in which he chooses from among uh, the Gentiles to make of them Uh, pastor teachers and uh, use them in special categories of that nature. We find finally uh, how God will punish those who transgress against him. He says this new body of Zion will stand forever. In verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Those that you bring in, this new Zion will stand forever, like the new heavens and the new earth. And he moves on to discuss the permanency of that and the permanency of the worship of the Lord in that new heavens and new earth. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. In the world to come, there will be regular, stated worship of the Lord. But notice what also will be. 
In verse 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. In this world to come, there will be something else that men observe. They will observe the eternal punishment of those who transgressed against God. All of us have transgressed against God. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the only reason that that punishment may not befall you or me is that Jesus Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace with God was upon him. And by his stripes, his punishment, we are healed. If we repent and if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who was punished for our transgressions. Now those who do not do that will bear their own transgressions and we have brought before us their eternal state. Their standing, their transgressions, their state, their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. Christ takes this passage of Isaiah and he quotes it in Mark chapter 9. And he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it's better that you enter into life blind or maimed than having two hands be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He's borrowing here from Isaiah's depiction of this. What a tremendous warning Isaiah and Christ bring before us here. This punishment will go on forever. It will be eternal. It will not die. This worm will not die, and this fire will not be quenched. J.A. Alexander, the great Princeton theologian and exegete of the last generation in his commentary, commenting on Mark 9, Christ's use of this, he says, Our Lord had six times spoken of eternal torments as unquenchable fire, from which no man could escape without self-denial and mortification of sin. The immediately preceding verse concludes with a solemn repetition of that fearful saying, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That is, their sufferings are endless and unceasing. But how can the subject of such sufferings escape annihilation? By being kept in existence for the very purpose of enduring them. This awful fact he clothes in a figurative form derived from the sacrificial ritual of Moses. Every victim must be rubbed with salt, the symbol of incorruption and preservation. So these victims shall be salted, not with salt, but fire. The divine wrath that consumes them will preserve them from annihilation, not from suffering, but for suffering. He's referring to the statement that Jesus made immediately after the previous statement when Jesus said, For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. There are those who deny this. <clears throat> they fall into three categories, 
annihilationists like the Mormons who say you'll just burn up and that's that, the restorationists uh, who would say that there would be those who would maybe suffer for a little while, be restored, there'd be a second chance later after death. Typical of that would be Halford Luckett's remark where he says, No soul is lost until God has thrown arms about him in eternity after death and looked long into his eyes. In other words, Luckett saying, God will give you a second chance after death. Ronald Ward's comment on Luckett's observation there, he says, that sounds like an authentic interpretation of the Christian faith. But in fact, it suggests what God has already done. It happened in the days of his flesh when our Lord said, How often would I have gathered ye, and ye would not? In other words, that arm is flung about us now, and he looks long into our eyes now. And if we don't respond now, it's too late. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. We have universalists, men like Bishop A.T. Robinson of the Church of England, who would say that hell is simply what we go through in this life. He says, in that sense, I believe in hell. It's no kindness to encourage anyone to think that life can be lived at any depth without the shadows. Uh, <clears throat> he says, hell involves experiences of suffering and frightfulness and torture here, experiences of madness, experiences of alienation. Well, that just doesn't do justice to the language of the Bible. There will be this awful eternal punishment. And we can give various answers. They say God is love, and we say God is also a consuming fire. Suppose we just said God is a consuming fire. That wouldn't be right any more than it would be right to say God is only love. We need a balance. God is holy. God is a consuming fire, and God is love. And if we don't respond to his love, we will experience his wrath. The greatest argument, says Robert Dabney, that the universalists have, namely the idea that all men will be saved, the greatest argument that they have is the carelessness of Christians concerning the souls of men. They say, you can't really believe that or you would be more in earnest in trying to win men. That's their greatest argument. That one really hits home. And the best answer to those who say there will be no eternal punishment the best answer is to give it all we've got, to pluck brands from the burning, to bring our brethren an offering to the Lord. How do we do that? Well, we do it when we give our money, for one thing. Because when we give our money here, I don't know what happens in other churches, but you and I know that when we give it here, we're giving it to send men to the four corners of the world and to the college campus and to the high school campus to pluck brands from the burning. That's what it's all about. And they don't go unless we give. And the reason that we've been able to do so much is we've been so blessed of God in giving. And we give ourselves as we take training. That's why we have a lay institute on evangelism here coming up early in December. That's why we have the conferences that we have. Take advantage of this so that you and I are equipped to go 
and to offer up our brethren to the Lord. That's the greatest offering you can bring to Jesus Christ, is offer up your brethren to the Lord. What about you? Are you dead and earnest about that? Or are you in argument for those who believe that there is no hell? You're either an argument against it by the way you live, or you're an argument for it. Which are you? You mean business about that. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Well, you believe that Jesus Christ knew more about this than you do? Then Jesus said there is a hell and that eternal torments go on there and that you and I are transgressors and that he was dying for our transgression. Now, there's a way to escape it and that is to commit your life to him. Do it today. You don't know when you're going to step into eternity. Don't delay. Let's bow in prayer. If you've never committed your life to Christ, right now, if you really mean business, pray in your heart and tell him, Lord, I acknowledge my transgression. I surrender to you. I come with that broken heart and contrite heart. And I put my faith in you to absolve me from my sin through your death. In Jesus' name, amen.